inviting you that there is such a beautiful flow of life from you into our bodies, into our minds, into our spirits, into our souls. And so, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, as we have been singing and worshiping this to you, I declare in Jesus' name, right now, just open yourself up to just such a beautiful flow of life from the root, from God, that we are grafted into him. And Father, I thank you for that life flow that comes into our physical bodies, that comes into our minds, into our emotions, into our thoughts. And I thank you, Father, that you are flowing life into our physical bodies right now in Jesus' name. Into every cell, I declare, every cell of our bodies is receiving resurrection life through the Father in Jesus' name. I declare our minds are receiving resurrection life in the name of Jesus. And I thank you, Father, that everything that you have ordained, you have already seen it through, that you know the end from the beginning. And I thank you, Father, that it is good. It is good in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to somebody and say, it is good. It is good. It is good. Amen. <laughs> Amen. It is good. This morning we have a very special treat as always. The first Sunday of every month we like to pray over your uh, finances, your tithes and offerings. We don't pass it plate or a hat every Sunday here, but the first Sunday of every month we do like to bless your finances. And so this morning we have asked a very special family member of N3C to join us. So JC Dickens, who has been a part of our family for, geez, JC, how long have you and Kim and Sarah been here? Oh, about, about 15 years. We, uh, we came here Tuesday night and Sunday morning and went to another church Saturday night. So we were going to church three times a day. <laughs> I mean, three times a week. A person said to me, they says, that's a lot of church. I said, well, some of us need more than others. <laughs> So we've asked JC to come up here and to bless our uh, finances. So JC, go for it. I appreciate the opportunity, but I want to start with Malachi 3.10 in the Amplified. Bring all the tithes, the whole tenth of your income into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Prove me now by it, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. What Bailey said this morning about steward, God's not going to ask you to give something that's not in your hand. Giving the, fir- giving the first, and he'll take care of the rest. This morning, I did not. I've been nervous about when Lynette asked me to do this because I came from the bottom. I remember in my early 20s, not having enough to pay my bills, not barely enough, 50% short, (laughs) and teaching from Glenn Smith, teaching from Coy Huffman, teaching from good teaching. Bring, Bring me the first, and I'll take care of the rest. When we bring God the first, he takes care of everything else. I'm looking at the shirts in my closet, what to wear. Not that long ago, I would put on 
the cleanest shirt with no holes in it to come to church. I got, I got plenty of shirts. That, that, that just brought it to me about overflowing, over, over, overflowing blessings. God will take care of you. God wants to partner with you. He wants you to put him first. Put him first. Put him first in our finances. Let me pray right now for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just come to you and we honor you and we praise you and thank you for this church and the, and the pastors that teach us by the word of God. And we honor you and we bring you, we bring you our tithes and offerings and we praise you and thank you, Father, that now, that now it's, it's on you. You, you take care of us. We honor you first, and we praise you and thank you for this opportunity to give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, JC. If you've never visited with Kim and JC, they always sit right over here by this post. That's their spot. <laughs> if you've never visited with them before, they are good people. And uh, if you're new in our church, Kim and JC are a great couple to know. They're a blessing, and what you see is what you get. They're real, and that's the way we like it. Amen? Yeah. Well, my name is Lynette, and if I've never had the opportunity to meet you before, I am honored to get to be part of the team here at Cowboy Church. We want to welcome our family watching out in Merced, California, Kingdom Ranch, Cowboy Church, so if you guys can give them a welcome. Yeah? And all of our friends watching online, we're just glad to have you guys. Hey, it's good to see you guys. <laughs> I have to share something with you. Before church this morning, I got the most amazing report. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we stood here and prayed a sweet, sweet couple that is part of our family here. And there was a, there has been a previous battle with cancer and she won. And she was told that there was, uh, again, cancer in her body. And she stood here, we prayed together, and I received the port this morning that the doctors have come back and said, you have no cancer in your body. Yes. <laughs> so that is so good. God is moving and doing miracles. And if you don't believe in miracles, well, that's too bad. You cannot believe in gravity too and just see how that works for you. So anyway, okay. So this morning I want to jump right into a passage of scripture that is one of my favorites to go to because God has ministered to me a lot from this. So we're just going to get right into it this morning. You guys ready? Put your seatbelts on and let's go. All right. I'm going to start out of all the passages this morning are going to be out of the New King James translation. And so I'm going to start in John chapter 5. And this is during the time that Jesus is walking on the earth with his disciples. And as he walks around, he encounters different people, encounters different circumstances and things happen. But each time we read something that tells us about what Jesus did in a particular situation, it's not just for that moment. What God is establishing for us through his word is he's saying, this is how I operate. This is what I do. And this is how I come through into the earthly realm from the heavenly realm. So when we read something, it's not an isolated thing that God is doing. He's wanting us to take that and see this is who he is yesterday, today, and forever. That means if he did it, then he's still doing it today. Amen. All right. So John chapter five, starting in verse two, it says this. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. You got it? So uh, everybody's laying around waiting for the angel to come down and stir the water. When the angel stirs the water, it is, it is a sprint to whoever gets to the water first. I would have my running shoes on ready to go. Just saying. Okay, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Look at your neighbor and say 38 freaking years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. That's longer than a lot of y'all been alive. That's a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that was the Sabbath. So when we read this, it's not something that God is wanting us to read and say, wow, that's really cool. God healed somebody by the pool of water. What he's wanting us to look at and see is this is who I am and this is how I operate. And when he says here, Jesus says to this man who has been in this condition a long time, 38 years, he's been this way. And Jesus looks at him and has the audacity to ask him, do you want to be made well? Actually, that word want there, when you look that deeper into it, in the Greek, it means to desire or to wish. What he was asking him in that moment is, dude, you've been sick. You've been in this condition a really long time. Do you have the capacity? Do you have the ability to dream and to picture and to imagine life beyond the border of your sick mat? This is what Jesus was asking him. Jesus was not being a smart pants and saying, do you want to be made well or do you like sitting here like this? That was not what Jesus was coming with. What he was saying to the man is your life has been restricted to this square mat for 38 years. And for 38 years, your existence has been limited by your sickness. Your existence has been limited by what your physical body will allow you to do. And Jesus comes to him in this moment, encounters out of all of the people around this pool. We just read that there was many of them laying around and out of all of the people, Jesus comes to this one man, looks him in the eye and says, can you with me standing in front of you, can you imagine life beyond what you're in right now? Regardless of what the restrictions are, regardless of what everyone else is doing around you, regardless of what day after day after day has been for you, can you imagine, can you wish for something more than what is right now? 
And this man answers him. He doesn't, he doesn't say, uh, yeah, I think I can do that. Or nope. His answer is, I have no one. We heard an amazing message from Bailey on that here a while back. But his answer is to give him a reason as to why he can't or why he hasn't. I would imagine if we put ourselves in this man's position for 38 years, this has been this man's life. And I don't know at what point this man started going to the pool every day. I I don't know how he got there. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if he stayed there. I don't know what the situation was. But at some point, this man, day after day after day, goes to the pool. And time after time after time, the angel comes down and he never is the first one in the water. I'm telling you all right now. I mean, I love Jesus, but I would fight somebody to get in the water first. And then I would pray afterwards, Lord, forgive me. So I wonder at what point did this man just start going through the motions? Because we gather at the pool. All the sick people gather at the pool. At what point did this man start going to the pool every day or hanging out at the pool just because that's what we do? Not really going with a great expectation of anything happening. Not really going expecting and hoping for something more than beyond his current situation. So that's a little question I want you to put in your pocket. Because time and disappointment can be lethal to hope. We started out last week talking about living hope, and I want to continue that this week. And I want to ask you a deep spiritual question right now. Bailey's already laughing because she knows that I'm being a smarty pants. How many uh, Survivor fans do we have in the house? (laughs) Two? I'm sorry. Like, we're going to pray for the rest of them after church is over, okay? Okay. That is one, that's one show that I do enjoy watching and I'm actually enjoying watching this season. Okay, since none of y'all else are watching it, let me catch you up. Okay, you're watching it. There's one dude on there that is like, his athletic ability this season is phenomenal. And I just really enjoy watching. He's he's amazing to watch. So anyway, all y'all that don't even watch. So, okay. But one thing, even if you don't watch Survivor, you know probably that their torch represents life. And the, the host dude that he says to him in this game, fire represents life. That when your fire is put out, you're done. You're no longer in the race. You're finished. So fire represents life. And in the same way in Survivor that fire represents life, in real life, when we lose hope, when we stop dreaming, when we stop living beyond what our current situation is and what our past has been, we lose life. The fire goes out. So how do you keep hope alive? 1 Peter 1.3 says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
That word living right there actually isn't just a living. It's actually living that comes after death. So it's a resurrected living. And then the word hope is defined as a confident expectation and anticipation, but having to do with an unseen future. You can't hope for what you already have. You can't hope for what's in your hand. So hope has to do with what you can't see yet. A few weeks back, I talked about hearing from the future. And today we're talking about hope, about seeing from the future. So hope has to do with what doesn't exist yet. And living hope is like a fire. A fire has to have fuel to keep burning, right? You got to stoke the fire. You got to put fuel on the fire. Hope is the same way. So how do you fuel hope? Romans chapter five in verse one, I uh, was working for a ministry full time and I got fired. I had never been fired from anything in my life. And I got fired from this ministry. Y'all, I was devastated. My heart, like I didn't know that Christians treated each other that way. That was what hurt me the most. And I remember sitting in the room. I got called in. They had a board meeting that day. And am I sarcastic about it? Yeah, because it was ridiculous. They had a board meeting that day and uh, decided that myself and the two other girls that were working there, the three, they called us the three, we were all blonde. So they called us the three blondies. <laughs> we were basically running the national organization because somebody else had stepped out and, uh, they had a board meeting and called us in at 12 o'clock at night into the office after the board meeting and dismissed all of us on the spot. I was devastated. And I remember the only thing I could get out of my mouth was, did you pray about this? And their answer was, we didn't have time. Right? That was my reaction. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. I had never, I had never experienced that kind of, uh, I felt betrayed. I felt disappointed. I felt hurt. I had invested so much into my job and, had given every, I was single, so I had nothing to do but invest my whole life (laughs) into what I was doing. And the reason that I got fired was because I got filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the, the bottom line of why I got fired. And they just were not having that. If I hadn't got fired from that job, I would have never met my husband. The door was opened there to move into something else. But at the time I was like, God, I need something because I don't understand this. This makes no sense to me. And this was the passage of scripture that God took me to in Romans chapter five, starting verse one, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This scripture tells us that hope does not disappoint us, but it also lets us know that hope comes after trial, after perseverance, and after tribulation. 
Hope is something that is developed. But this says to us that hope does not disappoint us. And that word disappoint means to disgrace or to dishonor. And the root of that word means to be put to shame. So when you look at that, what it says is that hope never puts you to shame. And when we go back to the man on the mat... I don't know at what point in time that man going there day after day that when Jesus the Christ was standing in front of him, asking him if he wanted to be healed, there was a point at which disappointment and shame set into this man that his answer to Jesus the Christ was not heal me and make me whole, but his answer was an excuse as to why he maintained and stayed in the place that he was at. I would just like to ask right now, if we could ask ourselves, is there places in our own life because of circumstances, because of the past, because of what somebody else did, because of the limitations, because of culture, because of the economy, because of who's in office, that we make an excuse when Jesus the Christ comes to us and asks us a question that our answer as to why we can't do something is because of all of this other bull crap that's going on rather than recognizing that Jesus the Christ is standing in front of us and that if we would put our hope and partner with him, that we would never be put to shame. But how many times has the world told us, don't get your hopes up too high because you don't want to be disappointed Do you read that anywhere in the Bible? No. But the spirit of the world comes to say, don't get your hopes up too high. Because if you do, you'll be put to shame. You'll be embarrassed. You'll be disgraced if you get your hopes up too high. What is that message saying to us? It's already gone before, looked into the future and said, it's not going to happen. That's what that's saying. When you think about it, don't get your hopes up too high because you don't want to be embarrassed. You don't, it's already making room for whatever it is that you're hoping for, whatever it is that you're imagining, whatever it is that you are using your holy imagination to see into the future. It's already telling you it's not going to happen. And not only that, when it doesn't happen, you're going to be embarrassed and put to shame in front of everybody that you've talked to this about because everybody's going to think you're crazy. Do you know that sometimes when you are walking with God, the world's going to think you're crazy because you don't make no sense, but you make total sense to God, total sense to God. Disappointment is directly tied to shame. You don't want to be disappointed. You don't want to be put to shame. Where does this come from? Where does that shame come from? I like to, when you're studying the Bible, you can use a tool. It's called the, the rule. Some people call it the law. It's not a law. It's just a tool, a first mention. 
And what that means is if you find a concept or you find a truth in the word, you can go back and look and see where was the very first time that this was mentioned. And when you find the first time that it was mentioned, that establishes a precedence that then from that point forward, every time that that is used, it will somehow tie back to the first mention. And if you can get a foundation of the first mention, then you'll have a deeper understanding of how it's used and when it comes up later in the scripture. It also helps you to interpret properly the whole of the scripture. So where is shame very first mentioned in the scripture? Well, it's actually mentioned back in Genesis, back in creation. And the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter two, verse 25, it's talking about when God created woman and brought him to man. And what the scripture says to us is that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So the very first mention of shame in the Bible is telling that in God's presence and the way that God established in all of the perfection of the garden was that there were no shame. They were both naked and not ashamed. That means that they were not hidden. They were not pulled away. They were not covered up, but there was no shame from either one of them. That word is the same to feel shame and to be disappointed. Well, Then you go on into Genesis chapter three, and this is where the serpent comes to the woman and deceives her and convinces her to eat the fruit of which God has told them not to eat. She shares it with her husband and he eats. And then we'll just jump right back in here. Genesis three, seven, it says this after they've both eaten the fruit, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? When God, this is something I've learned when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking you a question when God asked Adam, where are you? It wasn't because God was like, oh my goodness, I can't find them in the garden. God was asking the question because he wanted man to recognize where he was. And man responded and said, that I realized I was uncovered and I hid myself. That means that he put separation between himself and God. So when God said, where are you? It wasn't because God didn't know. It was because he was wanting man to recognize you have separated yourself from me. Where are you? And then when, when Adam responded to him and said that, he said, who told you that? Again, it's not because God didn't know. It was because God was wanting man to recognize Whose voice are you listening to? And it's not mine. God didn't come to him. If you look at God, look, take the, take the angry, mad eyes off of God that religion has put on him and look at what God is coming to him. He wasn't like, where are you? What have you done? Who are you listening to? He's coming to him and he's saying, where are you? Giving him the opportunity to recognize 
what he had done and where he had placed himself. See, the scripture says that God came looking for them. God did not separate himself from man. Man separated himself from God. Why? Because he recognized that he was naked and he hid himself because of shame. The first time that sin entered in, this is where shame entered. And rather than man going to God, he separated himself from God. And that space right there is where shame enters in. There are no spiritual vacuums, meaning there are no spaces that are not occupied by some spiritual form. You determine who inhabits the space. We determine whether heavenly presence establishes that space around us or whether the worldly demonic inhabits that space around us. There are no spiritual vacuums. Something is inhabiting it all the time. When he said to him, where are you? And he said, I hid myself. What that word means in the Hebrew is literally to withdraw from or to put out fire. See, all y'all that are not Survivor fans, you're wishing you'd watch Survivor now. (laughs) When he says, I hid myself, he's saying, I pulled myself away from you. And when I did, I put out the fire on the inside of me. My fire died. When we're separated from God, the fire on the inside of us has no fuel to be kept alive. Man's eyes were turned from God and were placed on himself and the fallen state of humanity. When we take our eyes off of God and when we stop looking at God, our focus turns to ourselves. Now, there's, there's certain uh, religions and uh, practices that will have you go deep into in examining yourself. Um, self-examination to an extent through God is good. God, you put your finger on something, but turning our entire focus into self and putting our eyes totally on ourself can be very, very destructive. The same way that it was for Adam and the woman. Because when they took their eyes off of God, they separated themselves from God because they became so aware of their fallen, broken humanity that there was so much shame that came in that they separated themselves from God. God will never, ever speak to you through the voice of shame, ever. Now, God will speak to you through the voice of conviction. Conviction and shame are two totally different things. Shame will drive you away from God. Conviction will draw you to God. You'll come running to God. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. So their eyes were turned to themselves. And he asked them, where are you and who told you? The separation from God is deadly to hope. Separation from God is deadly to hope. Shame is what drives that distance. Shame is what puts us at a space between God, and it's a killer to hope. So don't get your hopes up too high. And these are just some of the things that I wrote down, that when something doesn't come to pass or happen the way that we had hoped, 
the question when we're putting our focus on ourselves and not on God is, what did I do wrong? When you pray and your prayer doesn't get answered the way that you think that it should have or the way that you had hoped in the time that you hoped, what did I do wrong? What did I not do right? I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough, not important enough, and not loved enough for that to have been answered. What happens is all of the messages of what we are not came to us, which is the same message that the serpent brought to the woman in the garden was what she was not. When in reality, because the serpent came to her and said, if you eat this, you will be like God. When the scripture tells us that she was created in the image and likeness of God. So the serpent came to tell her what she wasn't when in reality she was because God made her in his likeness and his image. So the accusation of what you are not is exactly what the enemy is still using. See, he doesn't come up with nothing new. He can't create anything new. Only God can create life. All the enemy does is take what God created and manipulate it to try and twist what God said around to make you believe a lie. That's all he's got. And it's not changed from all the way back then. But yet we still battle it, myself included. We battle it. (sighs) All the things that we're not. But when we set our focus on all the things that we are through Christ, all the things that we are through him, the completeness of who he is, this is keeping hope alive. When we keep our focus on God and the completeness of his work in us through Jesus Christ, the scripture says to us that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it unto completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. We all are a process in progress. Every one of us. We're all working it out. We're all walking it out. That's exactly what Paul says. We're walking out our salvation. We're all walking it out. And it's not our job to look at somebody else and say, well, you should be further along on your path. You should keep your, in your own, we talked about it this morning. Stay in your lane. <laughs> Stay in your lane. The God of hope is the one who takes away the guilt and shame and gives us the gift of Jesus Christ. And now we have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us as proof of that gift. See, when Jesus was standing in front of the man on the mat, His focus was so set on himself that he couldn't focus on Jesus standing in front of him. But see, God is the one who gave us Jesus Christ to take away all the guilt and the shame. Guilt and shame are not from God. And he does not use that as a parenting tactic. That's not a good father to put guilt and shame on his kids. Hope is kept alive by the Holy Spirit in us. Hope is fed by the constant movement from glory to glory. See, hope doesn't stay in one spot. Hope is always moving. That's why the man on the mat stayed in that same spot day after day after day, 38 years. Eventually, it just is going through the motions. But hope is always moving. It's moving from one place to the next, to the next, to the next with God. And this is what the scripture says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, now the Lord of the spirit, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, 
the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. How? By the spirit of the Lord. It's not us doing it on our own. It's the Holy Spirit on the inside of us that is moving us from one place to the next and growing us from glory to glory. That word glory is honor, dignity, delight, splendor. To me, that sounds like the opposite of disappointment and shame. So when he says that we're growing from glory to glory, see what hope does is hope sees the past and the roots that have been established of our faith But hope honors the roots of our faith by looking forward to change. Hope doesn't fear change. Hope looks knowing that the former glory has nothing compared to the glory that we're going into. So hope acknowledges, I have roots. We all have roots. And when we read the Bible, we're not reading something that's foreign and that has nothing to do with us. We're reading our family history. So we recognize, my hope recognizes the roots of my inheritance, my heritage. And then I read this and I recognize that this is not a storybook for me to camp out on and to stay and to not change. I read this and I realize that all of those people of faith that have gone before me, now it's my job to pick up the mantle, to take the stick and to run my leg of the race. And we're moving from glory to glory. And when we are running in hope, partnered with the Holy Spirit, we're not afraid of change. We're not afraid of what the next leg is going to look like because we're anticipating and we're getting our hopes up just as high as we can possibly get them because when we lift our hopes as high as we can get them, we reach into the heavenly realm. God takes the hope that we have with anticipation and expectancy. He takes that and then he exchanges it and gives us the breakthrough from the heavenly realm that we have been looking for, that we've been dreaming of, that we've been anticipating. And he says, there's somebody who is just crazy enough to partner with me and believe me for something that is beyond anything that the world has ever seen. You guys can go ahead and come on up. It's not going to make sense. It's not going to be medically proven. It's not going to be something that has ever been seen before. What are you hoping for? And if you're sitting here today and I ask that question, you think, I don't know what I'm dreaming of. I don't know what I'm hoping for. Then get a dream today. Don't leave today without having a hope. Let me ask you this. Are you hoping for your marriage? Are you hoping for your children? Are you having an anticipation of the future for your community? Are you anticipating breakthrough? What is it that you are praying for right now that in your own resources, in your own knowledge, and in your own realm, there is no way that you could accomplish that on your own? What are you dreaming of? Do you have it? If you don't, you're going to get it this morning. You're about to step into it this morning. Because here's the thing, if you're not dreaming of anything, you're the man on the mat and you settled into just going through the motions. 
That is what the spirit of the world wants us to do is settle into the status quo and into the norm so that you come to church on Sunday morning. We're going to have three songs of worship. Somebody's going to get up and say something. And then I'm going to sit through a message and think about what I'm going to eat for lunch. And then we're going to pray and go home. That's the man on the mat. This is not a family of man on the mat. This is a family of pioneering breakthrough people. And if you're new here, you didn't know that. Well, welcome to the family. This is not a place where we sit and we allow status quo to determine what our life will be. We read what the word of God says that establishes where we're going and nobody or no one and not hell can keep us from going where God has called us to go. That's what we're doing. I'm believing for miracles in my life. I'm believing for things that nobody has ever seen before. And when it happens, people, I remember years ago, there was a man that spoke to Darren and I and gave us a prophetic word. And he said, you're going to stand in front of people and they're going to say, how did you do that? And you will not have an answer for them other than it was God. It was God. And you don't have to give them anything else than that. You don't have to explain anything. You don't have the explanation other than it was God. We don't take anything, any glory from him. We give him all the credit. And here is what I know this morning as I was praying and getting ready. God said that there are people in here who are breaking generational curses and barriers for your family today. You are the hope of the generations. Has nobody in your family stayed married? You're the hope of your generations. Has nobody in your family ever owned their own home? You're the hope of the generations. Has nobody in your family ever lived past a certain age because heart disease, because cancer, because stroke, because diabetes, whatever else they want to come up with, you're the hope of the generations. But you can't sit on your mat and allow status quo to determine your life. You have to get up and say, I'm getting my hope up as high as I can possibly get it because I know when I do that God meets me there because he is the father of hope and he is put the Holy Spirit on the inside of me and the Holy Spirit in me is stirring. He's stirring. So I'm inviting you right now to stand and we're going to join with the worship team and we're going to take this opportunity. Look, I'm early. I'm ahead of schedule. I'm still going to have you guys out of here to meet everybody in the buffet. Hope is so deeply rooted in us. It's the Holy Spirit. How does hope stay alive on the inside of us? By the Holy Spirit. You've got to have the Holy Spirit stirring on the inside of you. And the Bible tells us you stir up the gift on the inside of you. What is that gift? It's the Holy Spirit in you. It's the Spirit of God. It's the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that lives on the inside of you. Now you have resurrection life. You have resurrection power on the inside of you. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it today? I'm going to ask our prayer team to just come up and spread out across the front here because here's what I believe. I believe that there are some people in here today, and I'm going to say it's more than more than not. Go ahead, y'all come up. That there is a place where you are going to have to step beyond the border of your mat. 
What does that mean? Because you didn't carry your mat with you to church today. Oh, but you did. Oh, but we did.
I open that to you. If you need to just move out of your aisle and walk around the auditorium today showing I'm not living in the limitation of my mat anymore. This is your time. This is your space with God. You didn't come to church today to sit on your mat. You came to church today to encounter the living Jesus Christ. And we're getting our hopes up just as high as we can right now. There's going to be breakthrough happen. Are you ready? All right.